You're listening to the weekly Parsha podcast recorded with Hashem's never-ending assistance in Ramat B'Shemesh Israel, 5769-2009. This week's Parsha is a double-header, Matos and Masay. We're going to discuss the story of the people of the Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruvain, the people of the tribes of Ruvain and Gad. The Torah describes and tells us that they had a tremendous amount of cattle, a tremendous amount of sheep, flocks, all kinds of animals. And they came to Moshe Rabbeinu, to Moses, and he said, they said to him that we'd like to spread out over this land. And the Jews had not yet entered the land of Israel. But they said, we'd like to stay over here on this side of the Jordan River. And even though it was supposed to be that everyone was supposed to take a portion, each of the 12 tribes was supposed to have a portion on both sides. Nevertheless, Reuven and Gad, these two tribes, and also some of the tribe of Manasseh, they asked that they should be able to spread out over this area of land, and this will be in place of them getting any portion in the land of Israel. Now the Torah describes their request, so it starts off over here in chapter 32, verses 1, 2, 3. So they come over to Moshe Rabbeinu, to Moses, to Elazar Akoin, the Kohen Elazar, who had replaced his father Aaron Akoin, and they say as follows, this is in verse 3, Ataris v'divan v'yazer v'nimra v'cheshven they list off these nine cities that belonged originally to, to this whole uh, nation that had been conquered. And they say this whole land that Hashem struck in front of the in front of the Jewish people. So it's a land that's proper for people who have a lot of cattle, and we have a lot of cattle. Now it's interesting to note that when they came to speak, so the first thing they mentioned were these nine cities. And it's interesting because why did they have to mention these nine cities? Obviously, everybody knows exactly which cities were conquered. This whole land is what they wanted. So what were they mentioning these cities for? We'll come back to that question. We'll try to understand that soon. But Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses responds to them and says, that you know, listen, what do you think? That you're going to stay here? You're going to take this whole piece of land? And the Jewish people are going to continue on to the other side of the Jordan. They're going to conquer the whole land of Israel. And they're going to be involved in all of this war. And you're not going to help them out? How could it be? Moshe says it's a horrible thing, you're trying to weaken the hearts of the Jewish people, just like the Maraglim, the spies, they weaken the hearts of the Jewish people, you're going to do the same thing. And the Bnei Gob, Bnei Ruvain, these people from these two tribes of God and Ruvain, so they responded and said, heaven forbid, we'd be happy to go. We're going to go, of course, we'll be chalutzim, we'll run out in front of everyone. Listen, let us have this land, we're going to build pens for our animals, cities for our children, and... We'd like to have this land, but of course we're going to follow, and we're not going to come back here until, of course, we have gone with the Jewish people, helped them conquer the land of Israel. So Moshe Rabbeinu responds to this proposal, and he says, okay, if that's how it's going to be, if you agree to this condition, then in fact, we can do this, even though it wasn't a chathil, it wasn't originally what we had intended, what God had intended, nevertheless, it's okay. Now there's something that's very interesting about this story, because 99% of the commentaries explain the story in a very negative light in respect to the Bnei Gad, Bnei Ruvin, these people from these two tribes. And they say that these people were so attached to their materialism, they were so involved with their wealth, that instead of joining their brothers and properly splitting up the land of Israel the way it had been intended by God, they decided, you know, we want to take this land, we kind of want to take the easy way out, and we'd like to just stay here with all of our mikna, with all of our cattle, with all of our children, with all of our families. And it was a terrible mistake that they made because they were too involved in their materialism and that blinded them from having the ability to see the spirituality that was inherent in the land of Israel that they were not going to be able to receive if they didn't actually have a piece of land in Israel. No, they wanted a place which had a tremendous amount of area for their cattle and because of that they lost out their chance to have a piece of land in Israel. And now what's interesting is, and the Mephoshim say this, the commentaries say this, that in fact, 
hundreds of years later, when the Jewish people began to go into exile, the first group of people that went into exile was this group of people, the Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruvain, these people from the tribe of Gad and Ruvain. And part of it was because they separated themselves from the Jewish people, and they didn't appreciate the holiness of the land of Israel. Therefore, they were the first ones to go off into the diaspora to be exiled. And in fact, since then, these two tribes were never heard from again. Now, what's interesting is, I said that 99% of the Mephorshim, the commentaries explain it this way. But there's actually a beautiful, unbelievable Rabbeinu Bachai. The Rabbeinu Bachai, interestingly, he first brings this explanation of the story, and then he brings a second explanation of the story, which seems to be a totally opposite explanation, which seems to paint them in a very wonderful light. And we're going to see that it's an almost irreconcilable contradiction. Now, what does the Rabbeinu Bachai say? Very, very interesting. He says like this. He says, the first thing that they said, they spoke about the cities. What's the understanding? Why would they start talking about these cities? And he says something else that's interesting. He says, actually, what happened was, as soon as these Bnei Gad, Bnei Ruvain, they went into these cities. So these cities were actually named after Avodah Zarah's. Avodah Zarah's idolatry. Each of the cities was named after a different idolatry. As soon as the Bnei Gad, the sons of Bnei Gad and Ruvain, they came into these cities, they changed the names immediately. Now, what's the significance of this? What are these cities? So Rabbeinu Bachai says something which is wild, unbelievable. He says, if you look at each of the names of these cities, they actually hint to something completely different. You would think that they're talking about idolatry, but they actually hint to the concept of the spheros. What are the spheros? The spheros are ten divine emanations that God sends down into the world. We could call them emanations of light. And through these emanations, he interacts with the world and he shows his goodness to the world. Furthermore, these ten spheres, these ten emanations of God, are actually represented by different names of God. The names that we speak of, when we speak of God, we can't really speak about God. We cannot directly access His essence, because God at His essence is the most incredible unity. He's in a place that we can't exist in even. We can't access that place. So instead what we do is we interact with God, so to speak, through His names, through the spheros. But they do not actually describe God Himself, because God Himself we can never describe. The only thing that we can say about God is that we can't say anything about Him. But we do speak of God, we give Him names, but these names actually do not directly describe God. Rather, they describe an interaction that He has with us. And these ten different interactions that He has are called the spheros. Now what's incredible about this, explains the Rabbeinu Bachai, is that each of these different cities actually represent one of the different divine emanations. And he goes through each of them and he explains how they indeed correspond. And there are only nine cities because the tenth one, the tenth emanation of God, so it's on a certain level, it's a very high level, it's completely hidden, and therefore there is no city that's mentioned that corresponds to it. In any event, what we see is that these cities correspond to divine emanations. What's the understanding? We're talking about idolatrous cities. Why are they corresponding to the different forces with which God interacts with the world? And the answer is that this was a very high-level idolatry in these cities. What do I mean? What is the concept of idolatry? The concept of idolatry acknowledges the fact that there are higher powers. There's an acknowledgement. You know, we have the concept of Avodos Kachavim, the worship of the stars. So the stars do indeed affect the world that we live in. God sends the power through the stars. He sends through His divine emanations through the stars. So what happened? How did they become 
idol worshippers and worshipping the stars, what happened was, they said, why should we pray to the higher being if the stars are where it's all coming through? Let's pray to the stars. And they slowly, slowly stopped praying directly to God, but rather to the intermediary forces. And that's the entire concept of idolatry. Idolatry acknowledges the fact that there is perhaps a higher force. However, we're not going to pray directly to that higher force because the intermediary is the one who's more directly involved with me. So let me pray to that force. Let me bring sacrifice, let's say, to that force and get on its good side and thereby get what I need. But in any event, so the high-level idolatry of these cities was that they didn't go to the stars. They went to an even higher level. They were idolatrous in that they detached from God. Instead of praying to God, they actually prayed to the spheros, to these divine emanations themselves, which are on a tremendously high level, but still, they are not God. It's also very interesting because when we learn the deeper sources, the books that speak about the emanations, so they specifically warn that when we pray, when we daven, so we're not supposed to pray to the spheros themselves. We're not supposed to pray to the emanations, but rather we have to remember that there's an Ein Sof, this concept of God Himself, who's the infinite one. We can never properly understand Him for sure. However, He's the one that we're directing our prayers to. But the mistake that these idolaters made was that they, re- they directed their prayers and their idolatry was that they were involved with emanations. And that's why each of these cities was named after a different emanation. Now, what's interesting is, explains the Rabbeinu Bahai, that when the Bnei God and Bnei Ruvain, these two Shvatim, these two tribes, when they said that they wanted these cities, they started off with the cities. And the reason is because they wanted to take those cities which would be on the edge of the land of Israel and they wanted to change them from idolatrous cities into cities that were pure that were completely dedicated to the service of God what's interesting is that they wanted to take the level that was already there which was a worship of the emanations themselves and they wanted to raise it to a higher level of unity bringing it back to God himself bringing the worship and the prayers back to God himself it's a concept of yichud of unification because whenever we have a concept of idolatry it's always a disparity it's always separating oneself from God creating an intermediary and saying that I don't have the power per se to tap in directly to God. But that's the opposite of what the Torah teaches us. The Torah teaches us that every single person can tap directly into God. There's no reason to go to any intermediaries, whether they're human beings or whether they're idolatries. It doesn't matter. Even the spheres themselves, even these divine emanations, they are just conduits in order for us to be able to access directly into God. We need to pray directly to Him. Now the question is, how do we reconcile the fact that the Rabbeinu Bachai presents us with a very positive view of what these two tribes, or two and a half tribes, were trying to do by taking over these cities? They were trying to destroy the idolatry and create a haven for the service of God. So how do we understand the fact that all the other commentaries seem to paint them in a very negative light, that they had so much wealth and so much materialism, that's what they were involved in, they just wanted a place to leave all of their wealth? How do we understand what's actually going on here? Can these two understandings actually jive? Can they make sense together? I think that what we see here is that there was a certain dual nature to the way that they viewed reality. Every single Jew at this point, after 40 years in the wilderness, the entire Jewish people was completely dedicated to the service of God. And it's worth seeing as Rabbeinu Bachai at the end of Parshas Matos, I'm sorry, Masay, at the end of the second of the two Parshios, on the last, the very last verse, that speaks about the fact that at the end of the 40 years, whereas when the Jewish people at the end of 
uh, Sefer Vayikra, the book of Vayikra, Leviticus. So the verse says that God gave over all these laws to Moses. It doesn't say He gave it over in the hand of Moses to the Jewish people. Here it says He gave it over in the hand of Moses to the Jewish people. What's the difference? So the, I believe it's the Rabbeinu Bachai that says there that the difference is that at the end of Leviticus, so we were holding at the beginning of the 40 years, after all of the sins, the golden calf, etc., the Jewish people had not completely committed themselves to God. However, at this point, when the Jewish people were about to enter into the land of Israel, the entire Jewish people were completely, completely dedicated to the bris, to the covenant that existed between themselves and God. And certainly the Bnei Gadam, Bnei Ruvain, these people from this tribe, these two tribes, or two and a half tribes, Manasseh as well, so they were also completely dedicated to the service of God. That was their complete focus, being miyached, unifying God, coming close to God, dedicating their lives and their possessions and everything to God. And in fact, when they spoke about building these places for their animals, for their cattle, they, they wanted to do this in order to serve God. They wanted to do it in order to come close to God, to dedicate themselves completely to God. There wasn't a negative intent. However, there was a little crack in the surface, because how did they say it? The first thing that they said, and this is something that the commentaries point out, is the first thing they said is, we want to build pens for our animals and cities for our children. They had it backwards. They should have said it the other way around. And in fact, Moshe Rabbeinu Moses, when he responds to them, he says, yes, you can build cities for your children and pens for your animals. Meaning, if you want to dedicate yourself to God, you have to do it in the right order. Not only that, said Moshe Rabbeinu to them, he says, you have to join with the Jewish people. You want to be miyached? You want to unify God? The only way that we can have a unification of God and completely dedicate ourselves to God is if we unify with the rest of the Jewish people. There's another little chink in your armor. You want to dedicate yourselves to God. You want to unify God. You also have to unify the Jewish people because unifying the Jewish people, we are the vehicle for God's presence in the world. God as a unity can only be revealed in the world if the Jewish people are in a state of unity. And that was being threatened because it seemed that they didn't want to join the rest of the Jewish people on the other side of the Jordan River fighting with the Jewish people. That's why Moshe Rabbeinu said, if you want to do things right, you want to unify God. You want to come close to God. So you have to do it with the right order. You have to first have in mind that you're doing it for your kids, not for your, for your animals. True, it's also important to dedicate your material possessions to God as well. But the first order of business has to be your children. And not only that, you have to make sure that you join with the Jewish people. Even if you're going to stay on this side of the river, you need to have a unity, a connection to the Jewish people, and it has to last for many, many, many years. Now it's clear that the advice that Moshe Rabbeinu gave them, that Moses gave them, was tremendously powerful advice, because indeed, it helped them stay connected to the Jewish people, it helped them be able to indeed turn around the Avodah Zarah, the idolatry, which would disconnect man from God, and perhaps disconnect the Jewish people from each other. They were able to stay connected with each other, they were able to keep their priorities straight. But still, there was a chink in their armor. There was a crack in the foundation. And the result of this was that hundreds and hundreds of years later, when the Jewish people were beginning to go into exile, they were the first ones that would go into exile. Because since they were the ones who lacked that sense of unity at the beginning, even though their desire was to unify God, but they lacked the proper focus and the very onset. So they had that crack in the foundation. And that crack showed up many many, many years later, and they were the first ones to go into Gullus to be separated from the entire Jewish people because of that lack that they had. I think the message that we can take home for ourselves from this entire story is that it's essential when we're focusing 
even if we're focusing on our spirituality, it's especially essential that we recognize what our motives are and make sure that they're completely dedicated for God Himself. And the truth is that we all have a sense, a deep sense, that we know what our deepest intentions and convictions are. And we can also read them on anybody else. You can't hide what you really mean. You can't hide what you really feel. You can't hide what's really going on inside of you. And it's going to come out no matter what you do. So it's essential at the onset, when you enter into anything, that you purify your motives. You examine them and you see what's going on inside of yourself. Why am I doing this? Am I doing it for the right reasons? Because if I'm doing it for the wrong reasons, it's going to come out later and it's going to come out in ugly ways, heaven forbid. But if we realize what's going on inside of our heads and we understand ourselves, we acknowledge our feelings and then we redirect ourselves in a certain sense and make sure that everything is being done Hashem Shemaim for the proper intent so then God for sure will guide us so that we indeed do His will the way He desires it of us. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful Shabbos. Oh